0: Ohio Habla es un podcast que nace del proyecto Narrativas Orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos in Ohio. Exploramos la experiencia latina con entrevistas en español, inglés y spanglish. Welcome to Ohio Habla. I'm Elena Fowles. My guest today is Dr. Felipe Enojosa. Felipe Hinojosa is Associate Professor of History at Texas A&M University. He serves as the Director of Undergraduate Studies in the History Department and as Director of the Carlos Cantu Hispanic Education and Opportunity Endowment. Dr. Hinojosa's first book, Latino Mennonites, Civil Rights, Faith, and Evangelical Culture, was awarded the 2015 Américo. Paredes Book Award for the Best Book in Mexican-American and Latino Studies by the Center for Mexican-American Studies at South Texas College. Felipe Hinojosa is the youngest of seven children, five sisters and one brother, and is the son of a preacher. He grew up in a home full of Bibles and going to church two nights a week and twice on Sundays in a home filled with the sounds of the Bee Gees and Pedro Infante, and with the smells and tastes of arroz con pollo y frijoles and tortillas de harina. I remember that, Felipe. I remember mm, growing up mm, with mm. that. <laughs> Bienvenido a este episodio.
1: Elena, it's great to be here. Thank you so much.
0: Felipe you grew up in el Valle de Texas and yo al otro lado in Matamoros who knew right that we would need right. uh now with social media how how accessible we are right to each other i have i have actually met several people uh, several uh, several other academics who who grew up in el Valle and are now in different places in the midwest or or elsewhere Um, In fact, just last uh, fall, uh, I was at an oral history conference and in in the panel that I attended. So one of the presenters was from El Valle, I can't remember exactly, I think San Juan. Um, And then uh, some of the audience members, uh, a mix of graduate students and and, and, uh, junior faculty, were from El Valle de Texas, and I just... um, you know, I was just surprised uh, to see so many people from sort of like a small region, right, of Texas. Um, So tell me about growing up in hot South Texas.
1: Um, Well, first of all, it's it's really, um, you know, really great to be here and to be able to talk with you. Um, You know, I have admired your work from a distance for a long while, and especially this podcast, um, Mm -hmm. where you go and you tell the stories of Latinos and Latinas in the state of Ohio um have a lot of strong connections to Ohio I can talk a little bit about that later but um uh in 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 other words Ohio holds a very special place in my heart and so it's a real honor for me uh to be able to 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 talk with you today uh pues, te digo de south texas um, <laughs> it is <laughs> you know I I I uh traveled a fair amount uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in my life, and I have, um, you know, I, I left uh, South Texas, I left the Rio Grande Valley uh, mm-hmm. to go to college, um, you know, when I was 20 years old, so back in 1997 around there, mm-hmm. um, and you quickly, quickly realize that South Texas and that entire border region, Matamoros and Brownsville or Reynosa mm-hmm. and McAllen, Mm-hmm. Um, are very unique, unique spaces. And I think for me, it was the realization that I grew up in a very sort of protected environment. In other words, um, people in positions of power uh, were Mexican-American or of Mexican origin.
2: Right.
1: Um, you know, people crossed the border back and forth. Mm. There was a sense of community on both sides uh, yeah. of the border people who had family uh, in ambos lados. And in those days, if you wanted really good taquitos, you had to go to Matamoros. Uh, <laughs> you had to go to El Ultimo Taco. Uh, That's right.
0: To, oh, my yeah. goodness. You were, uh, you, we were probably there at the same time. Uh, Felipe, were oh, my gosh. There. I was I was just telling somebody about El Ultimo Taco, what some of my students, uh, the other day, and they just kind of laughed at the name. I'm so, no, I, a- I had not, uh, met another person that knows about Ultimo Taco.
1: <laughs> I mean, it was the place to be right after, after the, the club, after the club scene uh, mm-hmm. in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And so we'd show up uh, at El Ultimo Taco at about two in the morning and, you know, uh, uh, get about dos órdenes. One orden was seis tacos and <laughs> she get about two because, you know, oh we danced God. to all kinds. And so, right. and we were a little, uh, uh, we were a little foggy, a little blurry by that hour. And so, you know, to, to, to sober up a bit uh, before we drove back. Um, and so that life, and then my father, as you mentioned, was a preacher. And so mm-hmm. we were, um, dad had connections with uh, pastores uh, evangélicos
2: mm-hmm. in
1: Matamoros. Um, mm-hmm. And so dad would, dad and mom would go back and forth frequently, or you'd have People from Matamoros that would cross. Um, uh, I remember um, a gentleman by the name of El Hermano. We used to call him El Hermano Manuelito. He used to come over on mm-hmm. Sunday morning, go to church with us every once in a while, uh, and then we'd drive him and drop him off. Uh, in in El Puente. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in that in that regard, you know, you grew up in a space where your culture was uh celebrated it was Mm. uh something everybody knew how to pronounce your name
2: (laughs) um
1: you know i mean this is not to say it's a utopia of any sort far from it uh but uh, you grew up with a real positive sense of who you were and you knew the internal contradictions you knew the problems you knew of the poverty you grew up in it many of us did and so um you know you grow up in that area that sort of protects you and shelters you but i think really sort of educates you and instills in you a real strong sense of who you are so that by the time that you leave and you experience racism or discrimination of some sort you know my first reaction i know a lot of people from the valley who who leave at first is like no mama you're not going to treat me like this are you kidding me <laughs> you know this, this right. is not mm-hmm. this is not the the experience that that i was prepared for and that was when you go from someplace like south texas to the central valley in central california like i did at 20 years old and you Mm. and you see the forms of discrimination against mexican americans and mexicanos Mm. and mexicanas there um you start to really value south texas and what it what it teaches you and what the borderlands teaches you about community formation uh and you know we grew up by the beach the beach was close by 20 Mm -hmm. minutes boca we used to go to boca chica beach which was undeveloped beach you could park your car Mm-hmm. um, and then South Padre Island was nearby. And, and so it, it, it was a, it was a, uh, I think a unique time to grow up. This was before there was a concern about, you know, los carteles and all of that. Mm-hmm. And so oh, yeah. going to Matamoros wasn't, it just wasn't a concern. It was just something that people did to go get a haircut. People go and buy to the la farmacia to the pharmacy right. to get something to go eat, all of that stuff, you know? So it, it, you know, I love it. I miss home. I miss now that that we're in quarantine. I I miss not being able to 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 go back.
0: Me estás poner, uh, <laughs> You know, it, it, it's a, it, you're making me reflect about growing up there. Um mm-hmm. and what you're saying, right? And not really I mean, I grew up on al otro lado en Matamoros, right? So I I went to school yeah. um and I graduated from high school in Matamoros. Uh but but it was the border was fluid, um, more so than it is now. And, and, you know, people go back and forth and you just knew, you know, that people worked, um, you know, that lived in Matamoros, worked in Brownsville, um, or that lived in Brownsville, worked in Matamoros. And, um, and people just went back and forth, you know, daily. And it was part of their, their life. And, and, and you have familia in either side of the, of the border, Um, and all of those things, you know, just make, making me think about that, how valuable, um, and, and things that, that when you're away from that place, right, you have to claim or reclaim, right. Um, just the, the pronunciation of our names, right. That was never a concern, uh, when we were growing up there. Um, and then, and then you come to places like Ohio or, or other places where, um, there is less, um. Latinos and you have to teach and you have to and you have to push you know for uh for that um for and hold on to that identity right yeah. uh, that you never had to uh growing up in south in south texas
1: and and i think it's it's you know all of these misconceptions that people have about the borderlands you know i don't recognize any of it uh mm-hmm. and like i said yes absolutely there was crime there were all kinds of things that that happened and and things that went wrong and and uh uh and all of that and yet at the same time um you know it was such a uh a, a beautiful place i think one of the things that i love about la gente del valle uh, and this is my experience on both sides um, you know, my family is originally la familia de mi papa. My dad's family is originally from San Fernando, Tamaulipas, which is not mm-hmm. too far away from Matamoros. Mm-hmm. There's just a sense of hospitality. Um, if you, you know, I, I remember either bringing friends or other people or me going to another person's house and you're just meeting them, y la gente, it's like all of a sudden, aquí tienes tu casa. You know, mm-hmm. here you have a home. If you're ever back here in Brownsville, if you're ever back in the valley or whatever it is, um, you have a home. And I, I, I miss that. That's not the case, um, you know, where, where, where we currently live here in, in College Station. I mean, there's wonderful people here as well. But that sense of hospitality is unique, I think, mm-hmm. to communities that live Absolutely. on those, those margins
0: mm-hmm absolutely absolutely I, I do miss it you're making me miss everything yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah starting from tortillas de harina and arroz con pollo and you know all of that uh well, right now thinking, I,
1: re- I remember <laughs> being you know be you know being quarantined now just being at home like I'm telling my kids I'm like el barrio where I grew up you could walk to el puente so I grew up Mm. On Taylor Street, when you cross into Brownsville, mm-hmm. know. you know. Yeah, it used to be like that. Puente Nuevo and
0: Puente andale. Viejo.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. Puente Nuevo. You cross into Elizabeth, mm-hmm. and then from there, it's all the Los Presidentes, Washington, right. Taylor, Polk. All of the the streets are named after presidents. And so we grew up on Taylor. I grew up on Taylor Street. Mm. So you could you could very literally you know walk. And I tell my kids now that in those days, tenías in el barrio. So people mm-hmm. in their homes had mm-hmm. a place where mm-hmm. they would freeze Kool-Aid in styrofoam cups. Yeah, so It was like grape Kool-Aid or cherry Kool-Aid, <laughs> pour it in the styrofoam cup, put it in a freezer, una peseta, one quarter, and on a hot summer day, you could mm. go it's to the best house street and- ever. <laughs> oh, exactly. And tortillerias. I mean, you could walk to these places. And now, mm-hmm. you know, you live in, in a neighborhood and, you know, you have to actually get in a car to go to a store somewhere. And so... You know, um, when you don't have access to transportation or a way to get out,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, it helps to grow up in a place where where people are looking after each other and then trying to make a living, trying to make a little bit of uh, extra money on the side, you know?
0: Right, right. Um, so, Felipe, I know about you and your work for, for a few years now. Um, and, and it's funny, you know, uh, before we started recording this, um, I mentioned how nowadays people uh, Reach out to each other via email or social media, and and that's sort of how we got connected, right? Um, and I think it's wonderful. Yes. I it's not uncommon to see or to say, you know, to go to a conference nowadays and say, "Hey, I follow you on Twitter," you know, yeah, and that's right. how you uh, that's the first encounter, right, uh, with with that person. Um, and it's and it's actually um, it's a good thing, right? When people when you feel honored when people say that, um, so. I um, so a few years ago I read uh, your first book um, titled Latino Mennonites, and um, and I enjoy reading it for several reasons. Uh, one because the book mentions many places that I was familiar with in Texas, just like we're talking right now, you know, South Texas, and now the Midwest, right? And I and, um, also because it really pioneered the, pioneered the work on religious minorities within the Latino Latina population, as opposed to um, as opposed to um, Latina and Latino Catholics, for example, when we yeah. when we when people talk about religion or Latino <laughs> Latina religion, is usually um, you know there's still this idea of um, Catholics and Catholicism and and, and so on and uh, and and not only you know and this is not just um, uh, a Protestant group that you that you are writing about is Mennonites, which a lot of people. Don't associate, (laughs) associate, right? Like Latino Mennonites is like a, a, it's a contradicting, you know, pairing. Not supposed
1: to happen.
0: (laughs) Right. It's not supposed to happen. Right. Um, I actually didn't know uh, Mennonites until I came to Ohio. Um, And, and, um, you know, and so, so the the title itself uh, caught my attention and then, and then reading the work, you know, even more important informed uh, me of many things that I that I didn't know. And that were, you know, as we're talking, they were next door to me, right? Uh, growing up in, in Matamoros. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it also, the book also connects uh, religion with civil rights. And in the Midwest, which is also a region that hasn't had as much attention until about the last five to 10 years. Um, so tell me about the decision to do this type of work.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, when I, um, I did my PhD work in history at the University of Houston, um, and when I, when I got there, I had no intention of the academic life or the tenure track job or mm. being the professor at the big university. That was not my intention going in at all. My idea was uh, get a PhD and go and teach uh, in, back in South Texas maybe mm-hmm. at UT, what used to be then UT Pan American or mm-hmm. uh, South Texas College. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that was my, that was my intention. And so when I got to graduate school, uh, the, one of the first seminars that I took in history was a, a, a class uh, titled um, Comparative Race and Ethnicity. Uh, and I came in, you need to understand that I came in, this was early 2000s. I came in, I was a Uh, A Chicano nationalist, to some extent, (laughs) Uh, you know, very much about Mi Raza Primero and uh, Mm. Chicano and Chicana politics um, and caring about sort of the little world that we had constructed in South Texas. And um, uh, that mattered deeply to me. When I got to that class and I walked in, I quickly learned that, um, you know, my perspective was quite limited uh, not only as an ideology, but in the actual historical evidence, you have uh, Mexican Americans and Latinos and Latinas that uh, were not only, uh, you know, organizing movements, um, you know, that that were dealing with issues that had very little to do, or or were not only around race and ethnicity, but were also around welfare rights, healthcare. Uh, education, all of these other things. And in doing so, they were building coalitions with other poor people, blacks, whites, Asian-Americans, indigenous groups, and so forth. And so I was attracted to that. Um, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I think that really drew me in the fact that you have folks um, that we think are only talking to other Mexican-Americans. And in fact, you realize um, that, you know, we're, we're, um, we were co- uh, collaborating. Our, our folks were collaborating with people to build these movements, and I think in really innovative kinds of ways. So mm-hmm. that opened my mind. I knew I, I grew up in a, I grew up in a home, uh, uh, you know. I call it uh, un hogar evangélico. My father was a, uh, a un pastor evangélico, even though it was a Mennonite church. My argument has always been: it doesn't matter what Latino church you go into, whether it's Mainline Protestant, Methodist, Presbyterian, or Baptist. Or Pentecostal or Mennonite, mm-hmm. um, that there's going to be some evangelical uh, representation and expression in there. In other words, we all pretty much look the same. We worship the same. The coritos, the kinds of mm-hmm. hymns that we sing, are very similar. The mm-hmm. message is very similar. Um, and yes, you do have much more expressionistic uh, ways of worship that some groups have. Some mainline Protestants tend to be more reserved and so forth, but. For the most part, I can go to a Latino church and fit right in. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be Mennonite. So I grew up in that church. But when you're, but because we were in a Mennonite church, we were also una iglesia that stressed um, uh, el servicio al, al projimo, service to our neighbor. Mm-hmm. And so we were a church that was very involved in the community. We had a gymnasium where community kids would come and play basketball. In the late 80s, we were a sanctuary church, and so folks from Central America were finding... Uh, refuge in in our church gymnasium, Um, and we had a lot of people del norte, Americanos from the Midwest, Ohio, Indiana, Iowa, Mm
2: -hmm. that
1: would come down um, and would volunteer in our schools. They would become nurses, and these were really una gente con un corazón de servir. They had a sort of heart of service. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had their problems. They were not, uh, you know, uh, perfect, pero uh, they, they came with their paternalistic views and all of that about who we were as a people. But mm-hmm. este, you know, so all of that comes together in this one seminar at the University of Houston, where I'm like, um, you know, in, in, in thinking about the kind of church that I grew up in. And then my father, as a minister in the Mennonite Church, he had always been involved in like these national sorts of meetings. So we grew up taking trips to Iowa, you know, Ohio, lo And dad would always meet all of these people from different parts of the country. And so I grew up in a home where you'd have African-American Mennonites coming to visit us in Brownsville, Puerto Rican Mennonites. I mean, it was like a rainbow coalition that you saw building that dad was a part of to a limited extent, because dad was much more focused on issues in Brownsville uh, and in the valley. So I had all of that in my head. And I knew that at that point, if I didn't write that story about Latinos in the Mennonite church and the way that they built coalitions with African Americans and with Puerto Mm. Ricans Mm -hmm. and progressive whites that I didn't know who was going to do it. And I thought, why not? Let me just do it. I knew that that wasn't going to get me a job. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, like you said at the beginning, who writes about Latino Mennonites? I mean, it wasn't (laughs) something that I'm like, if I write this book, this is going to be a game changer. You know what I mean? Like, it, it wasn't any of that. It was a, it was my love letter to the church. It was mm. my love letter to the people that shaped mm. me, the people that influenced me, and I wanted to do it, and um, I did, and it worked out. It mm. uh, for whatever reason it worked out, and here I am.
0: But it did work. <laughs> yeah, it did, <laughs> it it did, did it, work it, and, and, in so many ways. I mean, I I, I love the book, Felipe. I love you. the book. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And I think I
1: think part of it was that I wanted to make sure that when I told this story. That it was a story of these Mexican Americans from Mathis, Texas, uh, Pueblito near Corpus Christi, just south of San Antonio, and how they collaborated with Puerto Ricans from East Harlem and how they met African Americans from St. Louis. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I wanted to really sort of blow up this idea that these politics and how they work um, in ways that reach beyond our immediate uh, communities. And I think Mm -hmm. religion has as a way of facilitating those kinds of politics.
0: And we don't talk enough about that, right? Because um, what we see in the media is, is, is you know, we, we're having these discussions now. And um, what you see in the media is not that. It's, it's more um, division than anything yeah. else, right? Um, so, so really, I, I, I think one of the things that I like most about your writing is, um, is the the how you incorporate the personal, the personal stories, whether it is of your family or, um, uh, or just people, right? So the your stories are centered around particular people, and you really, um, take us, you know, uh, to to that person's uh, life and 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 then situated within the context that you're you're showing, you know, in in, in any particular chapter of your book. So I really I really enjoy. Reading uh, that, um, uh, you know that that component of not not just history, not not, not the history of the church or the yeah. this particular community, but but its people also, right?
1: Well, I'm always I'm always amazed when people uh, like the book, so thank you very much. I appreciate it. I really <laughs> do. <laughs> um,
0: so. Uh, so, like you, you mentioned, right, uh, there is a connection uh, with, with family history. Uh, I mean, yeah. or you were inspired, right, uh, to write or to, to look into this maybe more deeply and commit to writing a whole book about it <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, based on that uh, family history. Tell me about what you learned um, from this journey. I mean, it has to be something special, right, uh, devoting this time, but also honoring that family history that you include in the book—that's
1: a great question. I, I hmm. and it's a real spiritual one for me. And I'll tell you why. Um, I was not uh, expecting to um, to find a lot of the, the the protagonists or the characters in my book the way that I did, uh, because it was amazing to me. Some of these folks hadn't. Uh, my dad hadn't heard from them in 20 years or 30 or 40 years. Um, and they had not, a lot of them, actually most of the people that I write about are no longer uh, in the Mennonite church or consider themselves Mennonites. They've left out mm-hmm. of frustration. And so to be able to find these folks and to sit down with them um, and, and then I tell you, I, you know, the first thing that that they would tell me is like, mijo, and they would call me Miko, you know because mm-hmm. a lot of them remember me as a kid, uh, <laughs> some of them remember seeing me at church conferences and, and they knew who my dad was, but they were they were like, Miko, I never thought that anybody would ever come and ask me about my story.
2: Mm-hmm. I never
1: thought that anybody would care about what I did back in those days and so mm-hmm. um it Oops. it was something that was really I think a powerful thing for me um, to to hear and it I think gave me, I think, this huge sense of responsibility in terms of what I owed these folks mm. to tell their story that, you know, was not being written about by Mennonite historians or anybody uh, you know, mm. at, at all. And so to be able to find them and to tell their story, and it was amazing because I would sit with them to do an oral history
2: mm-hmm. and
1: I would have to go through about an hour or two beforehand
2: of mm-hmm. them telling
1: me, you know, um their story outside of the church They're like mijo you need to know ya no voy a la iglesia. i don't really go to church much but back then this is my story and then you know or i've been divorced since mijo i hope that's okay with you and i'm like Hermana, you know in the evangelical world we say hermano or hermanas so like, right Hermana, you know um you know what are you talking about don't this is not i'm not worried about that there's at no all, judgment you know? here there's no judgment here absolutely <laughs> so and I, I remember i mean the as as a young historian trying to learn what I'm, my craft, right? What I'm doing here mm. to be able to sit with, um, you know, Puerto Ricans in, in, you know, on the island in Puerto Rico, and to be able to to hear their stories of growing up and uh, being born on the island and then immigrating or migrating to uh, East Harlem or the Bronx, mm. and them telling me their their stories. Nunca me olvido, and then I, I remember sitting with Neftali. Torres and Gracie Torres in in Puerto Rico, um, and we were in on on their uh, uh, right outside of their little home and uh, you know, on their farm. And I told, like I tell everybody, I'm gonna start the recorder. You know all the sort of oral history things mm-hmm. you need to take care of right before. And I said at any point, if you you know uh, want me to put hit the pause button because you don't want it to be on on the record, please just let me know. So the first thing that I asked them, this this was. A couple that was pretty prominent in the movement that I write about. And one of the first questions that I asked was, Why was this an all male group? Why were women not invited? Mm -hmm. Um, And Gracie Torres immediately leans over to me and and points to the recorder for me to turn it off. So Mm -hmm. I hit the pause button and she looks straight into my eyes. She says, No nos invitaron. The men Mm -hmm. never invited us to be a part of this movement. And Neftali looked at her like he had never heard that before he had always thought that they didn't want to be a part of it or that they had other things going on or that they wanted uh their own sort of women's movement and uh, separate from from uh from what the men were doing um and i sit there you know as a kid essentially listening to these elders of mine uh talk this this couple that loves each other deeply talk to each other about Uh, the ways in which the men marginalized the women in those days. And Mm -hmm. uh, to a large extent, um, you know, forced them into positions that they were not very um, happy about. The beautiful thing is that none of the women put up with it. They all fought back and they all organized their (laughs) own thing. And that was a brilliant thing. And so in every case that I, that I had in meeting people, um, it was a real education for me to, to be able to sit there and just hear their stories uh, and again, me daban un abrazo después. I'm still mm-hmm. in contact with many of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they always have projects for me that they want me to do. Um, <laughs> you know, but they, I'm I'm always um, you know it's an honor. It is has honor for me to be able to sort of um, hear from them that that um, that they felt valued for that little moment in their life. You know, ten years or whatever that I write about that nobody seemed to care about, and that they went through so much pain. It means the world to me that I was able to Mm -hmm. write about that and put it into the world. And I tell them every time, nobody will ever ever be able to ignore you uh, and what you contributed to to the church ever again. And not just the Mennonite church. I'm talking religion in the United States in
0: general. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, that's, yeah, go ahead.
1: No, I was just going to say, I mean, it's just a, I think it forced me as a historian to not uh, run away or not be afraid of telling the stories that matter and being a storyteller. Um, mm-hmm. and I think I've, I've really sort of taken that to heart and, and wanted to do that, uh, as, as a spiritual practice and the kind of work that I do, because it means, um, it means that the work is going to be harder. It means that I got it means that it's going to take me longer to write because I have, I want to go do the oral histories. I want to sit <laughs> with people,
2: yes.
1: you know, I want to go to the archives and I need to take time to tell their story, but I just I just can't see a way to, you know, that I can do it any other way. So
0: right, right, um, you know, and and the work I do as uh, with oral history, I I know what you mean exactly. Just sitting down with people, allowing them to tell the story of their lives. Um, and and what you said um, at the beginning, nobody had asked them before, right, mm-hmm. for, to, to to do this. And um, and I've and I've had those moments where people. First of all, they don't think that they have anything to say that's exactly. of value. <laughs> and I'm like, exactly. wait a minute, of course it is, you know? Um, and so they, to, and for us to witness that um, on people, but then to give them the opportunity and, in, in them feeling value, valuable and empowered through that, um, through that encounter and, and, um, and that connection Um, to me, it always feeds my soul for sure. Yeah. 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 To, to sit with people. So I, I understand. It Um, it
1: was a, when I, when I was choosing this project, I remember going to my dissertation committee at the university of Houston. And I remember one of my professors was Luis Alvarez, who's now at uh, San Diego. And I remember asking him, I said, Luis, I'm gonna, I'm about to embark on a dissertation project. Of a tiny little group of a minority within another religious minority, mm-hmm. um, is this a you know is this something I should think about or do? Should I go for some big project and all of that? And I, he, Luis gave me some great advice. I mean, he said, "Look, um, in terms of thinking about how large the group was, there were very few Mexican Americans that actually sported the zoot suit in the 1940s mm-hmm. in Los Angeles.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, that style." But what has mattered and what has made that fashion movement and that group of young people in Los Angeles at that time was the ways in which they were resisting larger sort of ideas about American identity and citizenship. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Luis's response to me in terms of, you know, what matters here are people's ideas and what they believed was possible in the world. And if Mm -hmm. you can capture that, you've got yourself a great project. And I, I, I knew that I did right from the beginning.
0: You did, you did, for sure. Um, so, Felipe, I got a preview of your new uh, book coming out in um, 2021. Um, yes. And the title of that book is Apostles of Change, Latino Radical Politics, Church Occupations, and the Fight to Save the Barrio. I read the first chapter, and I like how it connects religion, places of faith, with and places of faith with activism. Uh, Some of us know that many churches are, um, at the core, progressive and radical in their work for social justice, although we don't always get this, um, you know, people don't always know this about um, some of our churches. Um, And you're documenting this history um, and the relationship between groups like the Young Lords Organization and Faith Leaders. I like that you're offering, like in your previous work, a wide perspective on how churches have chosen to actively participate or remain silent in issues that affect the community they serve. Um, so you provide those, those views um, and how they come together at different points. Uh, tell me more about your book and what you hope to show to us.
1: So I think You know, I mean, a a central question for me has always been, um, what good does religion do in politics? Um, Mm -hmm. And I I follow that up in this second project. um, And I go from studying people in rural communities, uh, Mathis, Texas, and Goshen, Indiana, to um, the urban core of Mm -hmm. the United States. The, The book is split up into four stories, essentially. Um, Los Angeles, Houston, Chicago, and New York City. Hmm. So the four largest cities in the United States are the ones that I that I document. But in each of these cities, what drew me to them was the fact that um, each of these cities, like everywhere across the United States, in the years after World War II, um, were where a lot of urban neighborhoods, especially, were. Targeted for what the federal government and what local uh, municipalities were calling urban renewal. Mm. And that is to basically remove uh, predominantly working class and immigrant communities, uh, which were overwhelmingly black and brown, um, and uh, essentially push people out. Um, And I think in many ways, uh, if we think about the story of Latino history, the story of Latino history is about displacement, it's about community formation coming out of forms of displacement, whether you're talking about displacement from uh, or leaving, having to be forced out of your home community because of war Mm. in Central America in the 1980s, -hmm. or economic displacement uh, in Mexico uh, because of NAFTA uh, or other reasons, or because of urban renewal in the 1960s in these sort of heavily Latino uh, and African-American communities. This phenomenon, historians have written about this phenomenon to a large extent. What hasn't been written about is the ways in which organizers in these barrios, in order to to save their communities, to fight to stay where they were, uh, started occupying the churches. Um, mm. They saw that churches were really um, could be staging grounds to build a movement. Uh, these were buildings that were empty essentially from Monday to Saturday. Uh, they were used for Sunday worship, and then the rest of the days they were empty. And so these organizers that I write about envisioned using church space to establish a daycare center for working mothers, to establish uh, uh, public health care um, uh, opportunities for, for families in the neighborhood, um, to be able to provide breakfast uh, for kids. You know, this is a time that our schools did not have, uh, you know, free school breakfast. This is an idea that comes from the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 to be able to sort of think about and theorize and write the story of the relationship between um, these sort of non-religious actors, these organizers on the street, these Latino radicals, um, whether they're Puerto Rican or Chicano, and I write about both groups, um, and their engagements with religious leaders and religious institutions in the late 60s and early 70s. you know that story or that idea that a group would actually go into a church and take it over and say this building now belongs to the people. <laughs> um, <laughs> I yes. mean, that drew me in. That drew me in. <laughs> I was a girl. I was like, nobody's written about this. I'm like, I'm gonna write about it. You know, like again, it was like for me again, it was like this tiny. I always feel like for students, even if you don't have a a, a well thought out thesis statement, you know, if you've got a story, if you've got an idea. And you're willing to let that idea take you someplace. Um, you know, it it's it can take you to some pretty surprising places. But many times we stop because we're like, well, I don't know if I have a thesis statement or what's the, you know, what's my, you know, intervention into the literature. Mm-hmm. Or that Forget about mm-hmm. all that stuff. What's your story? What's the story that you want to tell? And what's the idea that just sinks itself into your heart and then just doesn't want to leave? And it was mm-hmm. like forcing me to write it. I mean, I was barely finishing up with the Mennonite book and I was already excited about hitting the archives and trying to find these other activists that had occupied these churches. Uh, to me, it was um, I, it was just unbelievable that nobody had written about it uh, prior to this. And that, it's not to say that nobody knew it had happened. I mean, it had been covered in magazines and people had referenced it in other book chapters um, mm-hmm. and so forth. But to devote an entire book to it, nobody had done that. And so I was like, I have to do this uh, because this is a great story, and I want to tell it
0: right. And tell me about the churches that they occupied. Is it what was um, how how were they chosen? Um, did they? Yeah, they uh, mm-hmm.
1: Well, I was gonna I mean, they were churches in the barrio. These were churches that were, I mean, right smack dab in the middle of the barrio that was about to be cleared by the city, for, mm-hmm. and that had been targeted by urban renewal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the case of the most famous case that, that most people tend to know about is the one where the young Lords, uh, occupied the Spanish Methodist church in East Harlem in New York city in 1969. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a church that not only was in the heart of East Harlem, a heavy, a heavily uh, Puerto Rican, uh, neighborhood or borough of, of New York city. Uh, But it was also about a block away from, a block or two away from where the Young Lords had their headquarters, where they had their office. Mm -hmm. Um, And the church was large enough, and the church had no social programs. And it was a Latino church. It was a a predominantly Puerto Rican church, and the pastor was a Cuban uh, exile in the 1960s. And so, I mean, it was, I mean, all of these churches and all of these cases come out of one particular neighborhood. So in Chicago, I look at the neighborhood of Lincoln Park, which Mm -hmm. is where it's a very nice neighborhood now. And it's (laughs) where um, DePaul University is at uh, Mm -hmm. in Chicago. Um, I look at the north side in Houston, which is an area that is now gentrifying. But back then it was going through white flight, So white folks were leaving that sort of area near downtown Mm-hmm. uh and in in new york city it's east harlem and in los angeles it's downtown the catholic church downtown that's my only catholic case is the the story about los angeles so mm-hmm. each of these churches the activists and the organizers were close to them they knew them these were not places that they targeted outside of the barrio these were mm-hmm. right in the middle of their barrio mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so it just makes me think whether um, they occupy these churches because, well, not only because of where they were located, um, but also because maybe they were not doing enough for the community. Yeah,
2: right, exactly, <laughs> uh, exactly.
1: Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, in a way, a it's it. like,
0: okay, well, you're not doing much, so here we're gonna take care of it, right?
1: Exactly, yeah. I
0: think, I think,
1: had. The
0: church has been doing
1: something, I think they would have been much more. And actually, there were in New York City, and in other places, there were other churches that were active in social ministries that they had a lot of Catholic churches were already already doing that. There were even a lot of mainline Protestant churches that were doing some of that work. But the churches in these barrios were not. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's, it was just interesting to me the politics that emerge out of there. And and everything that I had read up to then, historians and other scholars had written about it, but they had said, Oh yeah, the young lords or católicos por la raza, they disrupted this or they did this, but nothing came of it. And, you know, you move mm-hmm. on and you write about something else. And I'm like, I wonder if that's true. You know? Mm-hmm. And so I put my little detective hat on and I went to go find these folks.
0: <laughs> well, great, great. I'm glad. I, I I look forward to reading the rest of the book. Maybe I'll maybe I'll do another book review. <laughs> okay, great. <I laughs> when would appreciate it comes that. out, I would love when that. it comes Absolutely. out, yes, no. Um, so, Felipe, aside from being an incredible writer uh, and researcher, tell me about your work as an advocate for Latino, Latina, Latinx students at your university. Um, Tell me what you do, and you told me too that um, you were making uh, cooking videos for you. for for the students uh, and and posting them. Uh, so just tell me. I mean, it sounds so fun, and I, and and you gave me an idea to do this for for the fall semester. Uh, but tell me about the work that you do with students and how important. I mean, I, I and so. I think you just um, recently uh, posted something about the first uh, Latinx graduation. Yeah, um, that was just last year, and this is Texas, right? Um, right. And to me, it was right. wonderful to see that, but it is also troubling that it was yes. only in twenty nineteen that this happened for the first right. time. Um, right. So, right. tell me about this.
1: So I, so again, when I when I got to Texas A and M. Uh, Straight out of graduate school. Again, it wasn't anything that I expected. And, you know, once I got to campus, I knew right away what my mission was, I had to publish to get tenure, you know, that was clear. Mm -hmm. But I also knew that I wasn't just there for that, Um, that I wasn't going to let the research university dictate, um, you know, where I was going to invest all of my time, Uh, as important as that is, and I did it, I got it done and I got tenure, uh, and all of that. But for me, I would never have gotten to the place, um, and and I'm sure this is the case for you and others of us that came from South Texas and from Northern Mexico and that borderlands region, that we had people along the way that cared enough to reach out and to say, I see something in you. Um, I think you can really do great things. Let me give you a chance. Um and I just don't, I I just don't make it. I just don't get to where I got to. And so as soon as I got there, for me it was about, uh, you know, making myself available to students and collaborating with them in any way that I could. I had some really great professors at the University of Houston that modeled for me a type of student professor relationship that um, maintained a level of professionalism along with the with a side of mentorship with it. Um, And that was really powerful for me because, you know, in, in many cases for um, uh, especially for uh, first generation students to be able to talk to a professor is an intimidating thing Mm -hmm. Uh, to be able to go into their office and ask a question. I, I I think some, some of our faculty are very clued in. They, they realize this and they're sympathetic. Um, But a lot of times you have faculty that are clueless. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I got involved almost immediately with students on campus, and I did it by saying, "Okay, I want to bring events to Texas A and M. If we don't have a Latino or Latina uh, studies program, then I'm going to start bringing speakers here." And we did. We brought Maylee Blackwell, who wrote Chicana Power. Uh, we brought the director and the producers of Latino Americans, the PBS documentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We did all of these things to bring an awareness to students, and it was through that. It was through students hearing about all the great work that other scholars and, you know, documentarians were producing that got them thinking, we have to do something here at A&M. And so that's been my my passion is to just join with students and encourage them and talk to them, I have them come into my office. And, you know, the first thing is not, you know, about the assignment. The first thing is always Como estás? Como está la familia? How's everything? Right. You're doing all right, right. you know. And, and every time students tell me that they're stressed, I'm never surprised. I'm like, look, if you weren't stressed, I'd be wondering what's going on. Like we're all, you know what I mean? Like you're in the right. middle of a semester. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on. We're all stressed, but we're here to help each other. And I think a big part of it is when you and and this was people that encouraged me, la gente que me animaba me were people that always had high expectations of me. It was always people that said. I know you can do this. That's why I'm giving you this challenge. I know you can write this paper. I know you can lead this meeting or this uh, project, whatever it is. And that has carried with me now where, when I teach my Latino studies class or, you know, whatever it is that I'm teaching, the expectations are high. That means you better, you know, Mm -hmm. proofread that paper that you turn in. That means that you better come to class on time. That means that my expectations of you being excellent, uh, in this class, are are uh, are supremely high, and it's not it's not out of a sense that I want you to be perfect all the time. It's because I believe you can do it.
2: Mm-hmm. I,
1: I just believe you can do that, and so um, we did last year. The students organized the first uh, Latinx graduation ceremony. I and a colleague of mine uh, were invited to speak at that, um, and yeah, it's it's fantastic, and in, in my. Uh, in my role as director of the uh, Cantu Endowment, I've been able to help students uh, in terms of uh, helping them with funding some of the projects that they have or some of the things that they'd like to do. And so it's, it's, been a lot of, uh, it's been a lot of fun to be able to partner with students in this way. This is a generation, Elena, that is on it. They, um, <laughs> yes. they know the deck is stacked against them.
2: Hmm. They
1: know that it's difficult out there. And yet they are fighting. They are fighting hard every single day uh, because they know what's at stake. And they know that they represent their grandparents, their parents, Mm. and everybody. And listen, I always tell them, I'm like, y'all are so, you know, you're out here busting your butts, doing really great work. I hope you're having a good time también. You know, I hope you're going Mm -hmm. out and dancing and eating and, and enjoying yourselves. Because when you do that and when you do that in community, the work prospers. When you allow yourself to, to be a teenager or to be 20 something years old and to make mm-hmm. mistakes and whatever, when you allow yourself that time, it opens, I think, the possibilities for creativity. And so I always tell folks and my students, I'm like, I know you guys are working hard and you've got papers, you've got this. But look after each other, take care of each other, go get something to eat, cook together. And that was part of the <laughs> cooking videos, right? Yes.
0: So, you know,
1: teaching them how to make a pot of rice, arroz mexicano, you know, um, teaching them how to make um, salsita so they don't have to buy it at the, at the grocery store all <laughs> the time. It's so easy to make. Why, why would you go buy it? And then if you can make rice and beans, I mean, you know this, if you can make a good pot of rice. You're good. You're good for the week. <laughs> you're good for the week. You freeze the beans. You make a cup or two cups of rice, depending on how many people you got in your in your house, mm-hmm. and you're good. And mm-hmm. arroz y frijoles, y si te compras un aguacate, if you can't afford meat or whatever, cortate el aguacate and you've got, are yeah. you
0: kidding me? It's a full meal. So,
1: exactly. So this is, you know, I tell, I tell my students, I'm like, you know, let me, let me do this for you. Let me, let me teach you, because if you can learn how to cook, um, you know, and you can host and form community in that way, um, uh, this is what is so hard about this quarantine right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause I'm, I'm a little bit of a social butterfly, so it's hard right. to be alone. But uh, I
2: always
1: tell her, like, if you, if you can do these things, then, um, then it helps you in that community formation part which will then lead to great political work. It leads to great academic work. It mm-hmm. leads to you being the kind of leader you need to be for your people. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, Felipe, I know how important what you're doing with the students is and what that means to them because I've seen it here, uh, you know, at Ohio State and, and the work that I do with students, With uh, whether I'm teaching, you know, um, I teach courses and uh, for heritage learners. So, the majority, if not all, of the students that I have in the classroom are Latino. Um, and then I work with um, DACA students as well, uh, yeah. mostly Latino. And so I know how important it is for them to interact with uh, with Latino faculty um, and, and what that does and brings to them, uh, not only a model or, or, or somebody that, that, understands you know where they're coming from exactly. that is sensitive um to um to their backgrounds to their their particular conditions uh whatever the case might be um but what does it do, what does it do for you to be oh. in contact with the students
1: i think it's a sense of of um you know joy that it gives me because again I didn't go into this to just be stuck behind the computer and in the archives all day as much as I love that um I grew up in a big family as you mentioned right at the beginning mm-hmm. I grew up in a church constantly surrounded by people constantly you know una hermana que no puede pagar el bill de la luz you can't pay that electric bill this month we're all going to get together and sell chicken plates this weekend right
2: mm-hmm. but, you
1: know and, and we're going to help you and you're going to pay that you're going to pay that bill and so not, you know, academia has a way of taking you out of your mm-hmm. community and separating you from that. And I fight hard every day to um, nourish my soul by engaging with the people that are every day struggling in one way or another to make it better for everybody else.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I have, co- I, I have some amazing colleagues here at A&M that do great work with students that do great work in the community. Do great work in all kinds of places, and I think it's it's a sense of responsibility that we have, but it's also a way to care for our soul. It's also mm-hmm. a way to care for our spirit, and a way to um, to sort of balance out the kind of heavy um, sort of everyday work that we do in terms of reading and writing, uh, and education and teaching, and all of, all of that. And so. I find that, that I am uh, renewed every single time. It's why (laughs) students ask me to give a talk, you know uh, to one of their student organizations. I'm always happy to do it. I've been doing it uh, over zoom now, but (laughs) um, you know, it's, it's been, it, it has been something that has given me life because this academic life and the research, um, university life doesn't seem natural to me. It doesn't seem like it's, um, uh normal in many ways and mm-hmm. you have to fight um to to sort of stay connected with the people that can give you that sense of home and that's what keeps me going it's what mm-hmm. it look at Nima more than anything else um you know in, in the kind of work uh that i do and the other part of that is that i want to i want uh for my students to see me and say if this dude can do it from Brownsville or this professor, the doctor in can do it from Brownsville, <laughs> I certainly can do it. And it's like, pues, ganas, vale más. you better put the work in, you know? Mm-hmm. Have a good time, but put the work in.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh <laughs> yes, no, I I it, it's good work that you're doing. And and uh yeah, I I agree with you. Um to me working with the students feeds my soul too yeah um, and especially i mean you you're in Texas still, but you're away from from your family for from where you grew up right um and i'm very far away <laughs> from where I grew up, yeah um so building that community and the place um, that you and and some of my most of my students are from Ohio or from around here but um m- but there's very few Latino faculty that um, that are that are in their lives, you know period yeah um so i and uh sometimes uh you know I tell myself, well, I feel guilty because I feel like I'm getting more from being with you all than than you <laughs> you know because because i do i do it it is um it is it is uh um energizing right, to be yeah, around right. them and to and to hear them and to uh get to do work with them too um And, and I I don't know what your, your, your story is in, in, in academia, but, um, I didn't have that, uh, when I was a student, I didn't Mm -hmm. have, um, you know, mentors when I was definitely not during my undergraduate, um, work. Um, and then in graduate school, it it took a while, you know, it's like towards the end, um, of my graduate work that I really connected with, with, um, mentors that um that were interested and invested in, in in me and my future and that were people of color yeah and uh and so i definitely want my students to to have that uh something that i that i didn't have right because yeah. i know how important it is um and so yeah so it's uh, yeah it, it goes it's definitely both ways they um, i know how valuable that interaction is for them but Definitely, for me, it is too.
1: I would have never, you know, I had plenty of, of um, you know, interactions with faculty that were not welcoming and so forth, and and I knew, even way back then, even when I was an undergrad, I knew if I'm ever a teacher, I'm not gonna be like that person. Like mm-hmm. I knew right away. Like I didn't like the way they treated people. I didn't like the way they treated their students. I thought the whole thing was a sham. Like why do you have to be cruel or mean? Just tell me what I need to do or learn and how I can get better or whatever. You don't need to be rude about it. You know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. I knew right away that, that, that's not the kind of teacher. That's not the, that's not the kind of education that leads to liberation. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I knew that I wasn't, I just wasn't going to be interested in that at all. Um, mm-hmm. It takes more work and you're certainly um, looked upon a lot and, and, and um, a lot of emails and a lot of requests and everything. And so you have to, you know make decisions about when you say no and when you say yes and all of right, that right um, you know because i've got a family and, and my kids need me too and there's all of uh, people pulling you in different directions but um you know for the most part i try to stay as engaged as i as as i possibly can try
0: absolutely. to make the
1: most out of every day
0: absolutely Felipe, is there anything else you would like to share about your work or your future projects? I mean, I know you have your hands full with this, with this book coming up, uh, you know, next, next year. Um, anything else you want to share?
1: Well, no, I just really appreciate this opportunity to talk, and, and, and I appreciate you um, asking me about uh, the forthcoming book, and I'm excited about it. Uh, I think it takes me in a whole different uh, direction in terms of what I did, um, you know, uh, writing about Latinos in the Mennonite church. And so I'm, I'm excited about what's gonna come of that mm-hmm. and the future projects that, that'll come. It's always great to follow the fantastic work that you're doing, documenting <laughs> you. the stories of, of people in Ohio, because uh, there's a lot of Tejanos and Tejanas up there. I and- know. So you're doing great work just documenting all of that. And it's always fantastic to watch, um, you know, the good stuff you're doing and putting out there through social media and all that. And so it, mm-hmm. uh, I'm always inspired by somebody like you that is doing that work and others because it 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 really sort of highlights, hey, each in our own corners are doing what we can to tell this larger narrative, this story of Latinas and Latinos in the United States. And, and uh, uh, I, I'm great that I'm, I'm honored to be sharing this time uh, on this earth with you to be able to do this work, so it's great.
0: Thank you. Felipe, gracias por esta conversación. Thank you. A todos, gracias por escucharnos, y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima.